Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. It's me, your old, yes, very old, super old, put out to pasture old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ. What's to be left of me? I don't know what to do. Maybe my co-host has some ideas for an old hag like me. Without further ado, let's hear it for the one, the only, the very young. It's Michael Verratti. Well, what else can you do but the thing that all old hags do, and that's perform a number. Like, I've written a letter to daddy. To draggy. To draggy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love that you really, really leaned into the ongoing trope of you mentioning you're old on this podcast for this particular week. But also, just at the time of the recording, I think we should acknowledge we're a few days away from your birthday. Yeah. It's extra poignant. And it's a, it, this is a pretty uh, special birthday. So I'm turning 50. It's the big 5-0. Um, so what better time? Michael and I thought, well, the time is ripe to finally do an idol worship episode all about this week's genre. Michael, what are we diving into on this episode of Midnight Mass? Well, it's true. This is a very special episode because unlike other idol worship episodes, which usually center around a filmmaker, this one centers around a subgenre. And the subgenre that we have chosen is one that goes by many names. Some are a little more incendiary than others, but it is a very specific chapter of horror that fans of it know all too well. Some folks call it hagsploitation. Some call it psycho bitty. Uh, Some kinder folks have called it grand dame guignol. But yes, it is the subgenre that celebrates wicked older women and those who fall victim to them in such films as Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, uh, What's the Matter with Helen, Who Slew Auntie Rue, and many, many more. And why this trope continues is why we're here today because it's a, a subgenre that we're obsessed with, uh, that we love both as horror fans, as queer horror fans, but also because it speaks to certain, I don't know, political issues, uh, gender issues. And it is something that I think is very worthy of both idol worship and idol dissection. It's like us. It's a niche within a niche within a niche. And it's absolutely a subgenre that has a sort of diehard group of fans. And let's be honest, they are primarily made up of gay men. I know that there are plenty of people that are fans of these movies outside of the category of gay men. I mean, I myself identify more as queer than a gay guy. But this genre is so ripe for Midnight Mass, this subgenre, that basically every film that we'll probably talk about is one that's deserving of a Midnight Mass episode. And some of them already have had Midnight Mass episodes. And you know what, Peaches, as we're talking and as I'm thinking about it, I understand why the inclination is to categorize this as an idol worship, but I'm wondering if maybe now four seasons into the podcast, it might be time to create a different subcategory. Idol worship is sort of for people. Yeah. But this might be, you know, riffing on our our sort of blasphemy that we do. This could be the first in a new series of sainted subgenres, you know, the idea <laughs> that sainted subgenre. You're hearing the behind the scenes mechanics of Michael and I making an executive decision. Let's build this episode, Midnight Mass, Sainted Subgenre, Hagsploitation. Although, 
let's get into that. There is a more modern take on renaming this subgenre because the two most popular phrases are hagsploitation and psycho biddy. Yes. Now, if you look this up on Wikipedia, which I did, it's actually listed under psycho biddy. I, growing up and being a young queer who was introduced to this subgenre by older gay men, it was taught to me as hagsploitation. Both are offensive to women and acknowledge in a way this sort of tongue-in-cheek way that this whole fandom exists. There's sort of an acknowledgement when you're a fan of these films of the love that we have for the women going into them, but also an acknowledgement that these were exploitation films. It is a matter of record in previous episodes. We've addressed these uh, labels before, like when we talked about Sunset Boulevard, when we had Jeffrey Schwartz and Bianca Del Rio on, and we've talked about it in other contexts. I personally don't love the phrase hagsploitation while also recognizing that it was the attributed title for so long for this subgenre. And it does have sort of its place in academia, but As Peaches points out, the reason those monikers really took hold is because even though they celebrate the older women, they're still also kind of judging the women in the genre. These movies are usually vehicles for older actresses who Hollywood and maybe audiences consider past their prime, who maybe were known for something else, who then have to turn to horror to get their name back above the title on the marquee and on the poster, who have to turn to horror because they're not getting cast as the ingenue anymore. They essentially cast themselves as monster. And there are layers to that because while we love them kind of approaching these villainous roles with abandon, of course, There are discussions of agency, there's discussions of gender perception, there's discussion of misogyny that all go into this. And even to create these titles that kind of take away their agency by using words like hag and biddy, it's loaded. And so, of course, this genre that we love is also in many ways born out of some problematic things that we get into as well. Absolutely. So for those of you who are tuning in and saying, what the fuck are they even talking about? Let's <laughs> let's just get into the most simplistic definition, which ultimately, Michael, I know that people probably will argue one way or the other about what titles are included and what aren't. But in a broad sense, these were movies that were made for aging actresses who no longer fit the bill of a female lead in Hollywood because of the sexism that exists in Hollywood and because of the way male run studio systems worked, they really did believe that women who were on screen were useless if they were past their prime, quote unquote. These were movies that were made that often involved horror aspects, thriller aspects, some sort of scary component and featured these older women as being crazy, you know, in some way, quote unquote, you know, or imbalanced or suffering mentally, Now, that being said, not every movie that we probably will talk about fits that definition exactly, but that's, the I think, the broad version of what a hagsploitation or psychobiddy movie is. And I think it's really important to note that a lot of the politics of these movies and the representation in these movies is as significant 
in front of the camera as it is behind. Because these women were sort of in transition in their careers in Hollywood, and they're taking on roles that maybe they wouldn't have earlier in their career. But what's also important to know, and I, I bring this up with our guests later, is that this genre actually exists because of a lot of the women who starred in these movies. Yes, a lot of these films were directed by very prominent male directors of yesteryear, but Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which is foundational, it is often cited as sort of the first movie that kind of picked this off, even though there are movies like Sunset Boulevard and others that paved the way for Baby Jane. Baby Jane was motivated by sort of a tenuous truce between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford being like, we're not getting the movies we want, so let's do one together, and they did. And that pushes into this other space that then they're able to negotiate Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, et cetera, et cetera. We know that when Debbie Reynolds received the script for What's the Matter with Helen, she's the person who made the movie happen. She put up $800,000 of her own money. She got Shelley Winters involved. Shelley Winters then went on and pushed several other of these movies into existence. It was a turning point where these women who often were at the mercy of the roles that were provided to them by studio contracts, but the studios themselves, they became the power behind the camera. And so I think that the idea of hagsploitation is extra loaded because it's not only hagsploitation with them in front of the camera talking about them as hags, but like it feels like the industry is just like, oh, look at them doing this. And taking a little bit of the piss out of the power that they have behind the camera, too. When, in fact, I think it's phenomenal. It's that age-old adage, if you're not getting the roles that you want, create them. That, you know, we hear a lot of actors say. Well, they did. And they created a whole subgenre, and we owe them for it. Absolutely. And I think one of the best parts of Ryan Murphy's Feud series, which, of course, follows the making of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, primarily, that's what this series centers around, is that strength that both Betty Davis and Joan Crawford had to embody in order to stand up to these studio executives and demand what they needed in this world where they had been around it long enough to know how fucked up it was and how awful these people were and how in order for them to play this game, they had to sort of, you know, get down and dirty and demand what they wanted and prove themselves. And they did. With that movie, they gave a big middle finger, you know, to the industry because they said, oh, you think we can't pull in box office dollars or Academy Award nominations because we're old? Well, we'll show you. And they did. I mean, and then because they were so successful, then we see much is the way with Hollywood. Once someone comes along and proves themselves, and then what I mean is they could make some money, then you see a bunch more of these movies, which thank God, because I love these older women. You know, I think today we have a lot of performances that we take for granted now that we shouldn't because it's people like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford who were willing to say, I'm not afraid to be old on screen. I'm not afraid right. to grow old, despite what you think it might look like or what it does. And in fact, Joan Crawford deserves a lot of credit because Betty Davis is in clown makeup and is playing the monster. Joan Crawford is playing an older woman, you know, and Joan Crawford was known to be a vixen of the silver screen. And, and I look at Joan Crawford, Elizabeth Taylor. There were some of these women that they paved the way, you know, for for actresses today. And, you know, Elizabeth Taylor is another one who was, you know, a doe-eyed ingenue who was in huge movies like Cleopatra. Yeah. And, and when she got older, she 
probably looked at folks like Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, and she did make choices where she was in. She went to England and made several horror films and some really challenging horror films. I really like her work in a movie called Identikit, which I really recommend people check out. It's very dark. Um, but that's sort of in the tradition of this. And what I really think is great is these are not only women who were willing to push the boundaries of their art, but they're survivors. I mean, Joan Crawford is somebody whose career is enviable because she was smart. She starts in silence. She has her early career, which is very storied, Academy Award winning. She moves into this space. There are like definite chapters to her career, but she always worked. And if you know her for certain eras, you may only know a certain Joan Crawford, but if you look at the whole body of work, that's a hell of a lifespan of movies. And, you know, from Baby Jane on, maybe if you only know her for movies like Straight Jacket or Trob. Yeah, you know? I was going to say, we don't really talk with our special guest about Trog, but it definitely deserves mentioning, you know. I mean, and that was Joan Crawford's final feature film appearance. And, and in some ways, there's a cruelty to that because it's such a weird kind of bad movie. But I also think there's a strength to it. I, I just look at her as someone who wanted to work until she couldn't work any longer. And I just, I love Joan Crawford. So I love all of them. I love all these women and I love all these movies. I really do, earnestly. Oh, me too. And the crossover between so much of the things that we've talked about in the past and things that we love. I mean, William Castle directs Joan Crawford in Straightjacket and I Saw What You Did. Trog is directed by Freddie Francis, who directed many Hammer horror films. Betty Davis goes to the UK and works with Hammer on The Anniversary and The Nanny. You know, these are actors who like found new audiences and rolled with it and thrived with it. I know Peaches, every time we do our talks before we talk to our guests, we occasionally like to bring up the Patreon, but this episode is specifically here today because of our Patreon. That's right. On Christmas, we asked our listeners to tell us what Christmas movie, holiday horror film they wanted us to talk about, and they voted in numbers for Who Slew Auntie Rue, starring Shelley Winters, directed by Curtis Harrington. And it was during that conversation, you can hear it happen if you're on the Patreon and listen to that mini-mass, where Peaches and I sort of in real time are like, this genre is its own discussion. And this genre has so much richness that we could talk about all of these individual movies, but there's something to be said about just the trajectory and the importance of this existing that it's a conversation unto itself. And so from Who Slew Auntie Rue, we were like, what if we did an episode about psycho biddies? And some of our listeners were like, yeah, do that. Do it. Well, they here weren't. we are. <laughs> That's right. Here we are. And with that, if you are a member of the Patreon and you support our podcast, you'll notice that we've been really loading it up with short films of both Michael and I's and, and lots and lots of content. And really, we're, we're trying our 2024 is to, to beef up that Patreon as much as possible so that you can just enjoy content all the time. With that being said, there are so many Psycho Bitty movies out there that Michael and I will put up another poll, and the compliment to this episode here will be another Patreon-exclusive mini-mass where you tell Michael and I what film you want us to tackle on our next mini-mass. So I think that's a good, good plug for the Patreon and also a good segue into um, our guest. We have one guest this week, which is why Michael and I felt more comfortable going on and on at the head of the show. We, we have one <laughs> guest um, because this person is 
maybe the greatest living expert on this subgenre. I have known this individual for a really long time. He is an award-winning historian and film commentator. He's written books. He has contributed to the cinematic landscape time and again. And what's really great about him is his connection to old Hollywood is real and true. He was friends with many people who made these movies. He was dear friends with Curtis Harrington, who made Who Slew Auntie Rue. He is currently friends with the Barbara Steele, and he knew Vincent Price. And his stories about old Hollywood are very rich and many. And when it comes to the world of exploitation, he has a lot to say, and in some cases, because he was there. It's David DelVal, and we're talking to him all about this sainted subgenre right now. I'm either their first breath of spring, or else I'm their last little fling. I either get a fossil or an adolescent pup. I either have to hold him off or have to hold him up. The battle is on, but the fortress will hold. They're either too young or too old. Welcome back, listeners. When planning to tackle an entire subgenre, we knew that our next guest was perfectly suited and uniquely qualified for the task. An award-winning film historian and archivist, this individual has spent a lifetime contributing to the ongoing pop culture conversation and in the words of Entertainment Weekly, has become something of a cult celebrity himself. He is the author of such books as Lost Horizons Beneath the Hollywood Sign and Six Reels Under, and has written articles for publications like Video Watchdog, Cinefantastique, Films and Filming, and had a regular column in Films and Review. His cable TV interview series, Sinister Image, included in-depth chats with the likes of Vincent Price, Russ Meyer, and Curtis Harrington. And since 1983 to present, he's been a leading voice in the world of audio commentaries, contributing his unique insight and personal stories to hundreds of boutique label releases. In fact, I've had the pleasure of teaming with him on several tracks, including The Killing of Sister George, which is particularly relevant to today's discussion. If we were to list all of his many credits, we'd be here all day. He's a writer, journalist, commentator, TV host, regular documentary interview subject. He's been a casting director and an agent. And as of 2016, he's an inductee to the Rondo Hatton Monster Kid Hall of Fame. He's a true sensation. It's David DelVal. David, welcome to the show. It's about time I should be on this show called Midnight Mass. Being a lapsed Catholic, I love that. I mean, and I did do Midnight Masses in my day. In Latin, by the way. I like that for hammer horror. <laughs> I know that I speak for both Michael and I when I say that you have been on our list of guests since we created this podcast. We have some guests that are so qualified to be on our show that it's hard to choose just one film. We typically have uh, uh, an episode focus on one movie. Once in a while, we do a special episode like this where we try to tackle a genre or at least get into the flavor of a genre, a unique genre. And that's why you're our singular guest for this entire episode because you are more than qualified. Now, what do you prefer? The Hagsploitation title or Psycho Biddy title or both? You know, if I were an old broad, I'd probably be angry about both of them. And you know <laughs> that the actresses that we're about to discuss would loathe being called a Psycho Biddy. 
except for Miriam Hopkins, who really was a psycho biddy. And I, I'm dying to talk about her because I actually met her a couple of times. And she did not disappoint me. She was everything I expected in a totally delusional old bag. She was fabulous. Hagsploitation, both of the things address the fact that gay men always fear, which is aging. And I think the reason that right. the gay community embraced the psycho bitty uh, subgenre, as we call it, is because there's a bit of ourselves in these grand old divas that refuse to acknowledge the passing of time. And when you know them personally, you realize how deep-seated this is. But Joshua, we live in a city, Hollywood and San Francisco both, where the gay community has always given way too much leeway to beauty, the same way Hollywood does. We ignore the elderly, we ignore the simple and the mediocre, and we focus on the impossible. We focus on men that are extraordinary. I mean, I'm crazy about <laughs> Henry Cavell, but I could go all day in Hollywood and not run into another one because they're very, right. they're very hard to find, you yeah. know. But aside from that, I do believe that the the hag exploitation phenomenon is also relevant because all of us, gay, straight, whatever, are afraid of getting older. Right. And the only reason we fear it is because we're afraid we're going to get left behind, that we're going to get ignored, that we're going to get kind of canceled in a way. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I do know that enjoying these movies, there's a moment in each of them where the actress has a monologue or something. The greatest monologue about aging is by Barbara Stanwyck in The Thornbirds when she confronts Richard Chamberlain, she says what every gay man my age has said to his younger mm. companions before they tell him to fuck off, you know? It's just like, I'm still young underneath all this shit. <laughs> the gray hair, overlook it, because I'm really, you know, and it's, it's Greek tragedy, really. In previous episodes, when Peaches and I have touched upon movies within this subgenre, like The Baby or Sunset Boulevard, which is very prototypical of this, we talk about how hagsploitation isn't very kind. And I love that you went there right away and how Psycho Biddies is sort of not derisive as well. And I've seen people try and kind of come up with a new term and one that has entered a lot of historian writings of late is Grand Dame Guignol, which I really kind of like. That's nice. <laughs> Betty wouldn't like it, but she doesn't like anything. <laughs> uh, she was a real terror to know. Uh, Joan Crawford always kind of admonished Robert Aldrich by saying, well, that man likes horrid things. Well, yeah, but he's a guy and, you know, you can't fault Robert Aldrich for being stuck in a genre like Robert Wise. He directed in every genre, you know, right. the man that did Baby Jane did the Dirty Dozen. You can't get more diametrically on the other side of the scale. Why to the Phoenix, you know, he's a, a king. What was the one with uh, uh, Ernest Borgnine? Uh, King of the North Pole or something, just fabulously testosterone-driven action movies. And then he did Sodom and Gomorrah, which to me is a comedy. I mean, it opens with these guys saying, well, watch out for the Sodomites, which, uh, you know, <laughs> I think is, good. is a good thing to watch out for, especially in San Francisco. So, <laughs> David, I, I do want to ask, you know, before we get into a lot of the work that you've done in this space and your personal connections, before the writing, before the commentary tracks, 
what is your personal journey with this subgenre? Like, uh, when did you first get invested in these movies? What led you to them? And I know you spoke a little bit about it with the gay connection, but I'm just thinking in general with your personal history. Well, my personal history, being raised by a single mom, is that all of the movies that resonated with me, and let's face it, boys, from 1 to 12, the movies that you're exposed to in the first 12 years of your life stay with you forever, and they're beyond criticism. I always tell kids that are going on about Star Wars, I go, well, if I were 11 years old when I saw it, I would have been blown away too but I was 46 when I saw it and it didn't do to me what it did to you, okay? But my mother was an actress. She wanted to be an actress. She was very beautiful. She came to Hollywood in the late 40s and tested for a biography they were gonna do on Jean Harlow and they did her hair platinum and she kept it that way forever. My mother was like Debbie Reynolds in What's the Matter with Helen. And so when I watched movies of actresses that failed, when I watched movies of actresses that were left behind by evil men that abused and used them, you know, I'll cry tomorrow, anything with Susan Hayward. I thought of my, it was my mother. And when I watched Psycho with my mother, that was the most uncomfortable moment ever because we watched it twice together. And I famously said, Psycho did for motherhood what Moby Dick did for whales. <laughs> which is not too much in the in the positive arena. So I came to movies kind of comparing them to my home life. You know, what in these movies responded to what I was going through with my mom, the kind of distant father. Tea and sympathy, when I first saw it, I thought, well, geez, that could be me, couldn't it? So movies and my personal life kind of intertwined when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And uh, believe me, you hold on to those things mm -hmm. when you're growing up. And I grew up at a time when being gay was not cool. And up until high school, I didn't pass for straight, particularly. But I was lucky that I had a personality that because I was always the new kid in the school, I was always having to prove myself. I was always having to be special. I was always having to be funny. I was having to make up for the fact that I wasn't the cool guy in school. And uh, I learned from that. And I learned everything I know from movies. Movies informed my entire life. It's quite amazing that I've been able to make a living with my passion. Not all of us yeah. can do that. It's a slippery slope because the cost of living keeps going up, up, up. And um, I'm a little past it, you know, for that street corner that I used to inhabit. When I told Peter Berlin, get off that corner, bitch, it's mine, you know? <laughs> Amazing. We do have a fear of our beauty fading because it was, in many ways, how we survived. A lot of us depended on our beauty in order to bake ends meet. Not so much me, <laughs> but I have many friends who were sex workers and, you know, lived off the grid. And you see that time and time again, that the worst thing you can become in our community is old. The classic moment in Death in Venice, Dirk Bogard goes to the barber's chair and allows himself to be painted up like a whore. <laughs> and, the, and the mascara begins to... It's Giuliani. 
Right. Yes, exactly. The, the, the stain <laughs> coming down. Yes. Gay and he's been in drag. I mean, the gay community doesn't want him, but if, if he did turn out to be gay, which he might well be, among other things, you know, he's already done the awesome bomb. Right, right, right. You know, and I looked at that when I saw it, and I thought it was very interesting. Anne Rice told me that she thought if vampires existed, that would be their favorite movie. Oh, amazing. And I think that's a brilliant observation on Anne's part. Absolutely. When I was young and I was in film school, I had older gay male instructors who actually told me what to go and watch, you know, in in the late 80s, early 90s. So I had these sort of mentors. And one of the films that was told repeatedly was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And so you brought up Robert Aldrich and you brought up Joan Crawford. Is that the movie that really launched this genre? Because when you read about it, it's kind of like the one that's cited the most is sort of giving heft to this this rebirth of this genre or or a birth to this genre i think it was sunset boulevard in 1950 okay. because sunset boulevard had the line norma there's nothing wrong with being 50 unless you want to be 25 and honey everybody that's 50 wants to be 25 or they pick up a 25 year old and pretend so yeah i mean no sunset boulevard is the beginning of this psycho bitty and may murray a famous silent film actress of the time her comment after watching it was none of us floozies was that nuts <laughs> and may west who was offered the role and i'm so glad she didn't take it because I, I adored may but she couldn't really act may was may you've never seen her in a movie where she wasn't may west right and she told me because i met her i had this incredible meeting with her at ravenswood and i was told by paul novak who was like her boyfriend, husband, keeper, been a bodybuilder in her show. He said, sit in the chair, don't get up, don't ask her any questions unless she initiates the conversation. And so I was just sitting there and I was treated to the Mae West show. But she came <laughs> out and the first thing she said to me was, come here, I want you to feel my hand. And her hand was like cellophane. And her face, her teeth, her hair was all hers. And she said, I've never had a facelift. And she told me the secret to her success and her youth. She said, I haven't had an argument in 60 years. When I walk on a set, no one argues. I'm not around arguments. I'm not around drama. Everything is cool. If anything isn't cool, I walk away. Mm. Those of us most in life don't have that opportunity. But, you know, and I, I think that's why Cher looks so amazing. When is that woman worried about anything in the last? She looks like she did when I was in high school. How is this possible? It's incredible. Beth becomes her. Yeah, That's exactly. Her. That's exactly what she is. She's the uh, Isabella Rose. She went to Isabella Rosalini. Yeah. Now, if they remade Baby Jane, it would have to be Cher and Lady Gaga. Oh. Or Cher yes. and Madonna. It should really be Cher and Madonna. And Madonna would be Betty Davis because Madonna yes. has made an effort to turn herself into Betty Davis. And I love her. We all love her. Yes. But what are we going right. to do? She is giving us the example that we're talking about today. Madonna has made the grievous error of trying to get younger and younger. Yep. She's gone a little insane, which is what happens when you have that kind of money and you're surrounded by people that won't tell you the truth, which is really the star with Betty Davis is a fantastic movie and no one ever talks about it. Mm. She goes to work at the May Company and she gets recognized by a couple of old ladies and they walk over and they say, well, didn't you used to be so-and-so? And she goes, yes. 
I am that person. And I know better than to be waiting on a couple of old bags like you. It's Betty Davis porn. Considering the line, didn't you used to be so-and-so, I agree that Sunset Boulevard lays the foundation for this subgenre. But I'm wondering if the reason Baby Jane often gets lauded is because there is this maybe incorrect perception that to be in one of those movies, there's also the implication that the actress is lowering their standards. I know that some critics had said that being in these movies is kind of damning because it's not as good as their films of yesteryear. Whereas I think that people tend to think of Gloria Swanson and Sunset Boulevard as career defining, where other people point fingers at Betty Davis and, and Joan Crawford for doing this sort of horror picture. Now we as horror fans and fans of these women don't think of it this way, but that was sort of the stigma they were applied. And I'm wondering what your reaction to that is. Each of the actresses that became known for exploitation, Tallulah Bank had Miriam Hopkins, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, Piper Laurie, any actress over 50. Shelley Winters, of course. These women, each one that I named, was very difficult to work with, very cognizant of trying to look their best. Tallulah Bankhead didn't make movies for years. When she did her exploitation movie, Die, Die, My Darling, she hadn't made a movie since Lifeboat. And prior to Lifeboat, she hadn't made a movie since Devil in the Deep that I did the commentary for. And she was primarily a stage actress. But these women all share something else that needs to be brought up. And that is that their behavior toward men is predatory. Predatory and they're willing to pay for it and they don't want anything that's appropriate for them. They all want, yeah, Fedora, the last gasp of Billy Wilder after Sunset Boulevard, which Billy, I have a lot of problems with Billy. I knew him and Audra and brilliant filmmaker, but homophobic, unfortunately. And uh, I knew this when I did the Mitchell Lyson movies. So when I saw Fedora and I realized it really should have been Dietrich or Faye Dunaway instead of, you know, they had like Marth Keller, people that don't have careers, that didn't have careers after this. I think that the women created in Hollywood a kind of unspoken legend that once you passed 50, you were difficult. And I did the commentary on a movie with Hedy Lamarr, her last picture called The Female Animal. And she plays exactly that. The movie opens with a Jack Daniels bottle being thrown out of her dressing room. Any movie that opens like that, I got to watch the rest of it. And so, <laughs> uh, so she throws the bottle out. And of course, she's smitten by George Nader, well-known gay actor who inherited Rock Hudson's estate. And George Nader becomes her boy toy. And this was Hetty's last movie. And this was done in the 50s. Mm. So Hollywood already kind of had the 411 on actresses of a certain age. And they all kind of exhibited psychotic behavior on top of it, which, of course, by the time Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho came out, that opened the door, too, because Psycho with mothers, Sunset Boulevard with actresses, older women became dangerous. Ma Barker, who slept with her own kids, incestual themes, homosexuality, homicides, all of this was part and parcel in this new wave well, it's just like we have a, a new wave of torture porn now. Yeah. Disguising itself as horror films. There's a new movie, or it was last year, called X. Mm -hmm. And I happened to catch that because I try and I'm working on a movie myself, which I'll tell you about at the end. So I was curious to see it. And in it, a woman playing an elderly character confronts a young man and demands sex. And when she doesn't get it, she stabs him to death. That's interesting. 
in the middle of a Texas chainsaw ripoff. And what's really interesting about X and the, the only major problem I had with it was that the woman playing that part was a young woman in mm -hmm. sort of, you know, wrinkly, you know, makeup. And they used the age and the older person's sexuality as, as a sort of tool of fear, you know, for the, yes. for a young audience, right? You got to see the prequel for that, which is called Pearl, which is the same woman, but in the 30s, who wants to be a Hollywood movie star. And it is fabulous. She was obviously a nymphomaniac on top of it. <laughs> Using a woman's age as a mechanism for fear is exactly what this genre is all about. And we still see it today. It's totally a valid and um, a good point to bring up. But I wanted to bring up something else that you talked about before we actually started recording, which I think is an interesting example of something that might be giving us some perspective on why these things are the way they are. And that's the TV show Feud, which, you know, based on the book, really goes into looking at how these powerful women, who I know we admire so much, kind of had to be a little bit crazy to survive in this world of Hollywood at the time. You know, if they wanted to work, if they wanted to have autonomy at all, they had to stand up to these giant assholes and maybe act hysterical or maybe really assert their diva behavior. What What do you think about that as far as these women go? Because I think they had a really a hard, they were survivors. It was a man's world. Right. Joan Crawford said it's a man's world and we have to deal with men on their own level. And remember, Joan Crawford, who, you know, it's like Karloff and Lugosi. I was a Karloff guy, and then I'm now a Lugosi guy. Joan Crawford is Lugosi. Betty Davis is Karloff. Joan, <laughs> I will always defend. I'm always team Joan. And I will tell you this. Yes, the moguls were awful. Awful. Harry Cohen at Columbia he was Harvey Weinstein. Every actress that's written a biography talks about Oof. having to put out. Everybody puts out yeah. here, man. Brad Pitt did. You think you think he didn't? I have a great story about him because the gay casting director he came to live with when he first moved to West Hollywood with $200 in his jeans was gay. Mm. And when Mr. Pitt left, the casting director was selling his underwear on eBay. And people were saying, where did you get Brad Pitt's boxer shorts? Well, I took him out of his room. Oh, my God. You know God. how long Brad lived there? He lived there for a year. Uh -huh. Wow. Okay. Okay. Everybody puts out, baby. You don't get it. I I've lived here for 50 years. Don't tell me about Hollywood. And the women <laughs> had, a, had a very rough time here. And Joan Crawford raised herself up from an ugly childhood and became a self-created work of art. Joan Crawford was a constructed creation and she was a star before Betty Davis was. She was a star in Todd Browning's The Unknown. She was a full-fledged star way before Betty Davis. You know, the line in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, we could have been friends. Man, that was so true. They both had the same husbands. They both had the same contracts. They both put up with the same bullshit and they admired each other. Joan Crawford went to New York and saw Betty really make a fool of herself on Broadway in Night of the Iguana. She was hideous. She looked like a clown. She was Baby Jane in that, and everyone hated her. And Margaret Layton won the Tony, and Betty was just ready to start knifing people because she was such a bitch. But in any case, Joan gave her that movie. She said, you're the title character. Now, that much about feud, which getting to your question, I have a lot of problems with Ryan Murphy. As a gay man, 
I applaud a lot of the things that he's doing. But because he's incredibly wealthy and powerful, he is going down the wrong path, I think. Mm. Feud is a huge mistake for all the actors and actresses that are represented in it. Victor Buono, we do not know if he was homosexual. I am assuming he was, but look what I'm saying. I'm assuming he was. Ryan Murphy put an, uh, a scene in there where Victor Buono is having oral sex with a kid in a theater, gets arrested, and Betty Davis goes and bails him out. Now, I would love for that to be true, because that's fucking hilarious. But it's not true. It's completely made up. And I just did the audio commentary for Shout Factory on The Strangler with Victor Buono. And, you know, his cousins, they're all upset. And I don't blame them, because there's no proof of that. There's no proof. Victor Buono was never arrested. Now, why would Ryan Murphy do that? The same reason he would make Joan Crawford more of a drunk than she was to give Betty Davis, played by the crazy Susan Sarandon. No, there's so much in it that wasn't true. And I do understand why Olivia de Havilland sued, because Catherine Zeta-Jones couldn't be Olivia on a cold day in hell. And I don't dislike Catherine, but feud is a huge mistake. And as a gay man, if you watch the one he did on Cruising, New York City, there's a lot in that that's kind of, uh, you get a lot of eye candy, so I, of course, love that. But the story itself is very, very nasty. A lot of it isn't true. I just think there is a problem when you're doing biography. It's Maestro. I have a huge problem with Maestro because it's sponsored by the Bernstein family. And they're going to make that wife into a sole survivor when she wasn't. Lenny was gay through, through, and through. And as soon as she died, he went nuts. He was wearing crazy clothes and doing the boys left and right. He was liberating. Her death was liberating for him. But you're not going to get that out of Maestro because it's just a, an Oscar grab for Bradley Cooper. It's an impersonation. It's not acting. Isn't it interesting, David, specifically with regard to Feud, how when you cite the issues that you have with the show, it really goes back to a lot of the problems that this subgenre and by proxy these women have been facing all along. And it's the the matter of agency. And I think that's really what this conversation is about in some ways, is that Time and again, the agency is taken away from these women and their stories through their age. And we're seeing them through these movies kind of fighting back at it, whether it's successful or not. And one of the big problems I have with the criticism of the genre and some of the names that it has, Hagsploitation, is it kind of implies that these women were slumming it to make these films and that it was a mar on their career. But they're the ones who motivated these movies. They're the ones who made these movies a success, both on camera and off. We know that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis were behind the making of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. We know when Curtis Harrington made What's the Matter with Helen, it's because Debbie Reynolds put up $800,000 of her own money. We know that Auntie Rue happened because Shelley Winters enjoyed working with Harrington and brought him over there. And it's so this idea that these women are somehow powerless, but this is genre that kind of makes fun of them exists because of them, not just on screen, but off. It's a matter of money. And it, well, listen, we're talking about women that were in the contract system of the 40s. In the 40s, Crawford and Davis were protected by the, the contract system. They were given movies to do. They did so many a year and life goes on. Once that ended, and then we got into the 50s, Crawford went into my favorite period of hers where she's 
the woman who's a little older, a little wiser, but she's still like female on the beach, which I, I incredible movie, you know, uh, with, with her, she actually gets a rent boy in that one with Jeff Chandler. <laughs> Fabulous. But no, these women survived into the era in Hollywood where Easy Rider came along, Night of the Living Dead, Psycho. These three movies changed the landscape of cinema. Every movie after 1960, after Psycho, all of a sudden motherhood was something that could turn into a horror film. Women of a certain age were predatory and dangerous. We now have something that didn't exist in Crawford's day, which is the cougar. Older women that use younger men. Sunset Boulevard was the beginning of it in terms of film. But the gigolo, the the kept guy, goes all the way back to Valentino. You know, the cigarette cases. When Norma Desmond gives Joe Gillis a cigarette case, she'd been giving them to guys for like since 1919. But uh, there was just this unspoken thing that there were men. If you look at uh, the film Day of the Locust, my dear friend Natalie Schaefer played a madam in that. And one of the boys in it was a guy I was seeing named Nicholas Cortland, and he became one of her escorts. And, and you know, the way they filmed it, because you couldn't really be as explicit as you are now. So Natalie would have him there running the projector for her risque movies that they showed back in those days. You know, before pornography was available in other means, it was magazines and loops of film that they would show. Lionel Atwell, the famous actor from the Universal Horror Films, got caught having a New Year's Day party with a bunch of underage girls or a couple of underage girls. And it caused a great scandal back in the early 1940s. But I think that... Uh, these movies all made money. And when Betty Davis was doing Dead Ringer at Warner Brothers and Joan Crawford was doing Straight Jacket at Columbia, Betty was laughing her, her head off about Joan slumming over at Columbia with this Robert Block movie, not failing to realize that she was doing the same thing at Warner Brothers with Paul Henry. You know, she's playing twins, but, you know, they already had to use the different camera lenses and stuff because Betty was older. And the drag queen is playing her in the limousine scene. If you look in the limousine, I think it's Charles Pierce. And Char did you know Charles Joshua? He was a wonderful guy, Charles I Pierce. I did not, unfortunately. But it's reputation and the legend of Charles precedes him. Well, I wanted Charles to do a stage version of Female on the Beach with him playing Joan Crawford's role and Jeff Stryker playing the Jeff Chandler role. <laughs> and we were going to call it Bitch on the Beach. <laughs> That would have been brilliant. We should brilliant. still do it, Joshua. That's, we should still do it with, with... That's true. Luckily, Michael and I are able to talk about a lot of these old movies. And what I found is we've got young listeners who listen to the podcast. So some of them may not be as familiar with these films or the genre. And I'm wondering, what would you recommend as a top five starter kit? If you could recommend five titles to get them going in the genre because we know that this is a huge genre and there's so many movies but let's take whatever happened to baby jane off the table hush our sweet charlotte the sequel the unofficial sequel to whatever happened to baby jane it started with crawford and davis and olivia de havilland replaced crawford which is a big mistake i would start with charlotte Victor Buono playing the father of Betty Davis, showing what a brilliant, he was 25 years old when he played her father. Can you imagine? And uh, Betty Davis has that great line when Olivia Davin says, I've left a good job to come here and help you. I didn't ask you to come here to help me. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, I love Betty Davis and that. She said Agnes Moorhead doing <laughs> a God knows what. I know what's in that pill. You ain't giving that to Miss Charlotte. You know, she got an Oscar nomination for that. Then I would recommend, because I resurrected this from the dead, Hollywood Horror House with Miriam Hopkins and Gail Sondergaard from The Letter is in this. John Garfield Jr. This is absolutely fabulous. It's trashy. It's disgusting. Miriam Hopkins shows a breast in this at the age of 70. Good Lord. But all right. Hush, I sweet Charlotte. Hollywood Horror House. Straight Jacket. Oh, my favorite. Nothing is better than Joan Crawford. I mean, when she gets off that train in that black fright wig and that charm bracelet, man, she goes, so-and-so was a woman and well aware of it. And she goes back and cuts Lee Major's head off because he's in bed with a young girl. I mean, Straight Jacket is Oscar. It, yes. this, Joan should have gotten an Oscar for this. It's William Castle's masterpiece. Yes. Yeah, I mean, she lights her cigarette by striking a match <laughs> on the record. That's incredible. Genius. Then I would recommend, because no one ever talks about this, Tam Lynn. Mm. Ava Gardner's horror film directed by her very gay great friend Rowdy McDowell Rowdy McDowell's only movie as a director and she plays the queen of the fairies I rest my case <laughs> <laughs> I rest my case of course the fan oh, Lauren yes. Bacall over the hill over everything doing a musical she should never have done and the songs in it are just great she has a bunch of totally gay dancers up on a bed with her and she's singing a song called hot love baby tonight oh yes and there's not one straight guy in this entire except for james garner well michael bean we'll have to talk about michael bean he got hit on by robert stigwood in this mm. and all this stuff that people are being outed for and canceled was just the way it was back then yeah. Can you imagine Robert Stigwood hitting on? Makes you wonder what John Travolta did to get in Greece. <laughs> I don't know. But I say that. Then I would recommend The Killing Kind by Curtis Harrington and Southern's uh, Psycho Biddy movie. And she plays an overweight mama. I couldn't watch this with my mother because it was too bizarre. Mm -hmm. But uh, John Savage, one of his first movies. Then I would recommend Ruby by Curtis Harrington with Piper Laurie, the year she did carry. So, right. and I would also probably recommend Lady in a Cage. Oh, I love that. Joan Crawford turned this down. Isn't that interesting? Because Olivia replaced Joan and Charlotte. Yeah. And then uh, Joan turned down Cage and Olivia did that. It's fabulous. One thing I really want to bring up, because I know that you were friends with him and even in your listing films, you mentioned The Killing Kind, you mentioned Ruby. We know that Curtis Harrington made What's the Matter with Helen and Who Slew Auntie Rue. He was a big contributor to this genre. Uh, I know you knew him. What was what was his relationship with this genre? Like, he kept making these films, and did you ever talk about it? Two words. Henry Farrell. Henry Farrell wrote Baby Jane, and he wrote the others that Curtis did, most of them. Henry Farrell kind of created that genre. And uh, Curtis kind of had the same reputation George Cukor had, a woman's director. That was the way you described a gay director prior to Stonewall. They were a woman's director. Mitchell License wrote women's pictures. 
And Billy Wilder famously dissed Mitchell by saying, well, he should really be just a set decorator. Thank you, Billy. Let's watch Fedora again, shall we? <laughs> I wonder where the genre will go next, because we don't have these iconic women unless, you know, you get someone like Helen Mirren or Meryl Streep. These movies were made because these women wanted to be name above the title and they couldn't do it as they did when they were young. I was thinking about exactly that. Do we have these films today? And it occurred to me that in a sense we do. And I was thinking about the nostalgia mashup of these retreads where you have Ellen Burstyn in a new Exorcist movie. You have Jamie Lee Curtis in a series of not very good Halloween movies. And there's this thing where we want to see these actors who we saw in these classic horror movies, you know, The Exorcist, Halloween. And now it's 40, 50 years later, and here they are back on screen. That's the closest I feel like we come to this sort of, what did you call it, Michael? The grand dame guignol of yeah. modern day. <laughs> the only thing that can be done, and I mean, there's talk of reanimating Amicus films and Hammer films. There's no Christopher Leeser or, or Peter Cushing's or Michael mm -hmm. Goss or Michael Ripper or Barbara Shelley. Didn't Helen Mirren win an Oscar for three minutes of time as Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love? Yes. She won Best Supporting Actress and she's on camera as long as I've been on this show. <laughs> my Oscar? Probably less time. Joshua, Michael, I really think that what we have to do is appreciate the movies that survived from those periods. I really don't think they're going to be revived in any particular right. way because the era in which they were made has passed. Yeah, I think one of the mistakes we make in trying to revive movies out of nostalgia is we neglect to remember the atmosphere that brought it together. The 70s was very specific. The 80s was very specific. I don't remember the 90s, but I'm sure it was great. The 90s, you know, must have had something. You can't replicate the past. But I do think one thing is very clear about horror films, and that is that they coincide with points of history that are negative. We're in an era where everyone is easily offended. No one reads books anymore. Most guys don't travel. No one's been in the army. There are no real men anymore, gay guys. I would drop dead if I saw a real guy these days. You know, the Henry Cavells, the Chris Evans, that we see those kind of guys. Where are they? I think that's why film historians like us are important because, you know, I lived through a period that needs to be chronicled, that needs to be talked about. The yeah. 50s, I don't remember too well, but it was very repressive. And you can see it in the films. You can see it in the Joan Crawford movies. You can see it. Well, you know, you must watch The Star. It's not a horror film, but it is. <laughs> because it's a terrifying Betty Davis. And, and of course, because she's such a bitch, Betty Davis was asked who her role model was in making it. No, she didn't miss a beat. She said, oh, I, this is Joan Crawford. No, honey, it's <laughs> you. It's you just as well as Joan. You can't really separate them. Like, you can't separate Karloff and Lugosi. Right, right. We could go on for hours and talk about it for hours, but we only have so much time. But I think that even in this time we've been talking, you've really hit upon a lot of really important things and spoken to why this genre, even though there are not a lot of modern examples of it, the classic films still endure. And that's what you do throughout your whole career, David. You're always bringing light to things we need to know or need to understand better. You celebrate these movies through your commentaries and your writing. So before we head off, we need to know what are you working on right now and where can people keep up with you? 
I'm doing an awful lot of work for Kino Lober that just won the, the DVD Beaver Best Boutique label for four years in a row. And I've been named as one of the, the commentators four years in a row, which I'm, I'm very blessed and happy to do because, you know, when you do something you love, you don't think of it as work. Uh, I'm also, for the first time, putting together an anthology movie called Last Call with my writing partner, Peter Sawyer. And we put this together. It's about a cocktail lounge on Hollywood Boulevard that's actually a portal for purgatory. Mm. And I do believe that purgatory is somewhere on Hollywood Boulevard. I just can't see <laughs> But anyway, we wrote this script and we did a table reading of it over at uh, the Elks Lodge, which is a lot of movies are being shot with Mike Gaglia. And we're going to shoot the cocktail lounge in there. So... Uh, we've already got the script and everything. So we're now going through the one unpleasant process, as you well know, Michael, with your experiences with movies, is raising the money. Always. So that's yeah. where I am now. And I will be posting things with, uh, we have a pitch deck and a trailer and uh, got some great people, that, you know, until we get our funding, then I can tell you who the actors are. Because one of the advantages in me being involved in this is I know a lot of people. And I also brought a lot of old Hollywood into this script. We have so many cosplay people like Marlon Brando and, or, uh, you know, Marilyn Monroe is in one corner. So I thought, what about a bar where all these people impersonating actors and things go in to have a drink? And then they happen to go in the wrong bar at the wrong time. And so I'm working on a movie. I've got um, a number of new commentaries coming out. I'm doing one with my friend Dan Moreno for Bill Lustig, The Million Eyes of Sumeru, which is yes. a uh, Harry Allen Towers and I haven't done any for Bill for Blue Underground. The very first commentary I ever did was Daughters of Darkness, the Harry Kumel with Delphine Sarig, and I did it for Bill Lustig back in the 90s. That was my first audio commentary. And I've done over 100 now. And as Bill says, I created a monster because you did that one and just kept on going. But I owe Bill that. So it's kind of interesting. Full circle now, I'm doing another one with Bill for Blue Underground. And... Uh, Aside from that, I've got a documentary, I guess, that's playing all the gay festivals called Studio One Forever. Mm. And I'm a talking head in that about the discotheque bar that was in Hollywood that was comparable to Studio 54, not as well. You knew Studio One, didn't you, Joshua? No. That's before, oh my God. This is where, <laughs> I, this is where like Betty Davis, I realized that you know because i'm much too young to know <laughs> i am turning 50 this weekend so that's my big milestone coming up i'm gonna be 75 years oh old. that's fabulous 75 years old can you imagine everyone i idolize is 75 or around there you know john waters mink stole cassandra peterson you know it's a fabulous age to be we're leaving out prince charles but i don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a wonderful time to be getting older because you know there's so many people who just are doing so many incredible things at an older age we're losing people left and right yeah. i mean jeff burr dying last year was a big shock to all of us because we all worked on his movie from a whisper to a scream and I brought Vincent Price into it. So I was very close to Jeff and he wasn't old enough. You know, I, yeah. I'm, I'm 20 years older than he is and he's dead. This is one of those episodes where there is so much cross-reference to other Midnight Mass episodes. So, you know, William Lustig, we just had on the podcast. We did a whole episode dedicated to Bill Lustig. We, um, of course, had 
you know, a Sunset Boulevard episode with Bianca Del Rio. We did an entire William Castle episode with his daughter, Terry Castle. So if you're listening to this episode and you haven't taken out your notebook yet because David has dropped so many references and mentioned so many things, go back, listen to this episode repeatedly. David is a wealth of knowledge. And David, I hope we get to have you back on the podcast. You're brilliant. I was beginning to feel like Miriam Hopkins. I was going like, "Where? I didn't come here to help you, you know? Why, why we we we, uh, we didn't do more? And if I do come back up to San Francisco, I'd like to meet you in person let's, for real. Yes, let's go do out it. and have have coffee and and get you know better acquainted. And I'm down in and LA Michael, all the time. Michael and I have a commentary coming up. When Michael and I do them, we try and find things that we both enjoy because we did Son of Samson together. Yes. Lots of oiled up men in the Italian desert. It was not a hard job yeah. to do, I will say. No, someone had to Lord do it. Knows we did both job. enjoy Everyone that. liked what we did too. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, David, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real gift. And uh, yeah, we will keep the conversation going. And thank you. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Happy New Year. For all of us, you know, and just keep watching movies. That's what's important. Yeah, perfect. Well, that was our interview with David DelVal, and woo-wee, that was a doozy. And wow, I'm so glad that we finally got David on the podcast. Obviously, that truly was one of those longer interviews that I could have gone on for days. He's such a wealth of information. He obviously knew so many people. In fact, I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to the interview because I want to jot down so many of the things he mentions that I'm like, wait, what? What movie is that? Who's that? You know, so much information. One of the films in this subgenre that we didn't actually get to, although I mentioned it in David's introduction, is The Killing of Sister George, which was mm. directed by Robert Aldrich. David and I did a commentary track for the Blu-ray release for Kino Lorber together. And it was quite interesting because it spoke to the idea of the thing that David was saying about how these movies also show the sexual wants and needs of these older women and how they were sometimes portrayed as perverse or like leaning into incest or homosexuality or things that would have been scandalous to an audience of that time. And Sister George specifically leans into lesbianism. And I'm really proud of that commentary track that we did together. I I remember doing a lot of research about kind of the landscape at the time. But what was really great about doing a real-time commentary as the movie's playing with David is he just kind of fires off. Like, he'll be like, that's this person who did this with this person, and suddenly you're on this adventure. And as people who just listened to the interview with him, that's how his brain works. His brain is a literal map of Hollywood history. And I would bet that he has probably forgotten more about Hollywood than most people ever know. One of the things that I asked David, I'm going to ask you, and I'll answer as well before we wrap this episode up. And I'm not going to ask you for five. I'm going to ask you for three. Okay. Um, in the interest of time and also just, you know, just to be fair, I think top three. But you cannot choose Sunset Boulevard and you cannot choose whatever happened to Baby Jane. So your top three favorite psycho bitty slash hagsploitation slash grand Dom Guignol movies. Go. Oh, okay. Well, um, whoever slew Auntie Rue has to be on there. I think it's delicious, and I love a holiday horror. Mm -hmm. um, I think that 
Lady in a Cage with Olivia de Havilland. Mm-hmm. Part of me just wants to say the baby just to be fucked up about it, but... Um, it totally qualifies. It does qualify, although I don't know if it actually cracks my top three. I do love it. I think Ruth Roman is really delicious in that movie. It might be What's the Matter with Helen. I know I've mentioned a lot in this oh. episode, but I, I think that Debbie Reynolds is stunning in that movie. I, you know, of course, she is true Hollywood royalty, but it's that thing. It's when you think of Mildred Pierce Joan Crawford versus baby Jane Joan Crawford, and you see the range of skill that these women bring to the screen, it's like, what's the matter with Helen is not singing in the rain, but Debbie did them both, and she was great. Truly. Okay, those are good. And because you chose Lady in a Cage, I'm not going to choose that, even though that probably would have been in one of mine. And because you chose whoever slew Auntie Rue, I'm not going to choose that because we featured it, but it also might have been one of mine. So you're kind of making it easier for me, narrowing it down, you know what I mean? <laughs> but first and foremost, one has to be Straight Jacket. It's William Castle. It's Joan Crawford. It's Axe Murders. We talk about it with our interview with David DelVal. If you're a listener and you haven't seen Straight Jacket, in fact... God, maybe we should put that up as one of our poll options. We should probably put all of these that we haven't yet covered. The next I'm going to choose is Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. It's a good one. Maybe we didn't talk about as much as we should have. Kind of like Straight Jacket is to Joan, you know, as far as the Whatever Happened to Baby Jane kind of double feature. I think Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte is to Betty Davis. For the Baby Jane double feature, it's just so fabulous. And, you know, Agnes Moorhead is in it, and it's wonderful. And it's Southern Camp, you know, which is just so delicious. Which, I mean, Suddenly Last Summer would also be right there. I don't know if Suddenly Last Summer qualifies, though. I will argue that I saw it on the list on Wikipedia, and I've never thought of that film as a psycho bitty movie because I don't think Elizabeth Taylor was out. Anyway, whatever. That's semantics. My my third, I'm going to choose... Kind of a strange one, Michael, because it's not of this era. And it's one I think it would be fun to put on our poll. But it stars the fantastic Susan Terrell (gasps) from Crybaby fame, as well as, you know, many other movies. But Butcher Baker, (laughs) Nightmare Maker, is one of those movies that whenever I turn someone on to it... Perfect. You know, it's a great movie and it does fit in nicely to the psycho bitty genre. Even kind of revisiting, you said the list on Wikipedia, so I peeked while you were talking. And there's so many that even in the ones that I listed, I'm automatically like, oh, I should have said this one. I should have said this one. I would love to go through the whole list on a mini mess because I, I swear to God, Michael, I feel like we could really dis- debate whether or not some of these titles belong here. <laughs> right. We could come back to this. But if you loved this episode or you're even curious about these films, we have more to come over on the Patreon. We will always cover these movies on the Patreon. That's what the Patreon is for, is Michael and I doing deeper dives. And this is a subgenre that we both love. We're both greatly inspired by. Clearly All About Evil, in many ways, is inspired by these movies. You know, Natasha probably wouldn't like me, you know, calling her a psycho bitty because she was quite young when we made the movie. But the inspiration for the character Deborah Tenise came from a lot of these strong, crazy women. Yeah, I just love it. And I'm so glad that we got to cover it. And uh, if you too are finding yourself a little long in the tooth and want to maybe pick up an axe or a knife and just get rid of some folks, well, then you may also be one of the children of the popcorn now. (laughs) (laughs) 
Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.